0: Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. This is Variety Deputy Music Editor Jem Aswad, and this week's installment is a conversation with a name that people in the music industry have been hearing for more than 30 years, Kevin Lyles. He was a top executive at Def Jam Records and Warner Music, he managed Mariah Carey, D'Angelo, and Trey songs, and he was even a recording artist who had one of his songs covered by Millie Vanilli, of all people on their multi-multi-platinum 1990 debut album. But he got his biggest look in January when the company he co-founded, 300 Entertainment, was required by Warner Music Group for a reported $400 million. That company, which releases music by such hip-hop and R&B stars as Megan Thee Stallion, Young Thug, and Gunna, is now part of Warner Music Group, and so is Lyles, who not only remains CEO of 300, but he's also CEO of Electra Music Group, a freestanding label within Warner. And as if the deal weren't a big enough flex, just days after it was announced, one of 300's artists, Gunna, beat out The Weeknd in a photo finish for the number one spot on the Billboard albums chart. That's a huge look for a company that, until a few days earlier, was independent. Sweetening the deal even more, Mary J. Blige, who signed with 300 last year, not only is releasing a new album on Friday called Good Morning Gorgeous, she's appearing with Dr. Dre, Eminem, Kendrick Lamar, and Snoop Dogg at the Super Bowl halftime show, which is the biggest stage and the biggest audience in the entire world for a musician. So how did Kevin Lyles get here? old-fashioned hustle really originally from baltimore he attended morgan state university on an engineering scholarship from nasa yes nasa and at the same time was working as an artist with the dj group newmark and interning at def jam as he says in the podcast the experience of having his song covered by a multi-platinum artist even a controversial one like millie vanilli made him realize the potential of the music business and so did def jam which at the time was part of a mini-empire, including Rush Management, which handled Run DMC, LL Cool J, and others, as well as the Fat Farm Clothing line. So, he focused on Def Jam, and over the course of the 90s, rose from intern to president of the label. And while he was there, he made some of the strongest connections of his career, with 300 co-founder Lior Cohen, with artists like LL and Mary J, and maybe most notably, with Julie Greenwald, who is now co-chairman of Atlantic Records and is now again his colleague at Warner Music. Kevin Lyles has come a long way, but as we'll hear in the next 20 minutes or so, he feels like he's just getting started. So without further ado, after the break, you'll be hearing from him and me on Strictly Business. And we're back with Strictly Business. I am going to start off talking about uh, the big news, which is, you know, the, the, the big 300 Warner deal, you know, reportedly $400 million deal that sees 300 and you becoming a part of, of Warner Music again. Big picture. What does this mean for 300? What does this mean for Warner? What does it mean for you? As much as you can say, because I know it's early.
1: Yeah, no, you know, the good thing about it, uh, man, you have to think about uh, the process. So first, uh, you talk about uh, Warner was, uh, and Atlantic was our distributor. Uh, Even though we were independent, we were getting distributed to them because uh, we helped build the company back when we went over in 04. Uh, Really for 300, um, it's really no different other than now, instead of family business, it's bigger family business. It's more resources, it's more opportunity, it's more people. Um, instead of having 75 people, 80 people, it's now 5,000 people uh, around the world uh, understanding our mission to uh, be independent but not alone. Our mission to, to uh, be independent and have freedom but have cap- be capitalized to do anything that we want to do globally. And then I think for Warner, uh, it's welcoming a prodigal son back home. Uh, it's welcoming... Uh, of of a reunion of Julie and I, who we grew up uh, fully our whole lives. It's given me the opportunity to work with probably 85% of the people who I knew uh, from uh, when I left. And most importantly, I think for them, uh, it's, uh, they they now have one of the most culturally relevant um, uh, internet-born, streaming-born labels uh, under their wing. And I plan, uh, in, in their words, they want, to, they want me to infect the a Music Group with our independent uh, mindset virus uh, and actually do uh, partner with them around the world and do great things. So I think it's a win-win for everybody. Um, I told my staff that um, I've taught you guys everything about independence. I taught you how to rob people to pay Paul, to uh, uh, brush your teeth one time a day and not use a lot of toothpaste. because uh, we don't have enough, I, I taught them uh, we might not have all the snacks in the world, but we have some good snacks. Um, so I told them everything about independence. Uh, now I want to teach them about the entrepreneurs.
0: Three hundred isn't changing that much, but you are now chairman CEO of Electra, which is look at that smile, <laughs> which is a bit you know which is basically a freestanding major label. So are you going to run? You're running two separate businesses essentially, right? Uh, it's 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 one business with two separate brands. Okay.
1: Uh, One business, you know, 300 uh, uh, have uh, its brand and uh, I'll make some more announcements about leadership there. And then uh, Electra, uh, Mike Easterlin and Gray Nadal people I've worked with before. Mike, we have a 25 year relationship. He was with me at Island Def Jam with and then a a bunch of the people there were uh, at Atlantic and former Warren employees that I worked with before. So where some people feel like it's uh, a, a new thing I just feel like uh, it's just a family reunion and we're going to define by genres of music, defined by personnel, uh, how we're going to go out and provide the best uh, independent mindset service amongst Electra and its labels and amongst 300 and its labels.
0: It still feels like it's a good time to ask because this is a strictly business podcast. uh, If you have any advice about multitasking.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But, But Jim, you know what COVID has told us to do is to, you, you, in order to get through this, you have to multitask. And I really realized it even more because uh, I got to spend more time with my family. I got to see, uh, do more um, PTA meetings, more homework, Zooms, uh, more opportunity. And so I became a, a, a better multitasker at home. But uh, when you talk about being ambidextrous in an industry that's evolving every day, uh, you're either going to evolve or you're going to die or you become extinct. And one of the things that I've been provided my whole life uh, from Def Jam to want to now is that flexibility and opportunity uh, to evolve. So I would say uh, um, don't put yourself in a situation that you feel that your toolbox is full of tools. You know, I, at 53, I still want to learn. I want to listen. I want to lead. And I want to do good in the world. And these, are, and I start with listening and learn because if, if, as soon as I say I don't need to know it, know nothing, I have to step down because... I'm learning every day.
0: Um, it would seem that managing as many artists as you did, as many demanding artists as you did at one time, that would have helped with the multitasking a lot because you, there could be things popping with three or four of them all at once, right? How how did you manage that? Did you just like sort of knock them down in order of uh, level of crisis?
1: <laughs> you know, Jim, when it, when you think about it, uh, let's go back to Def James. At Def Jam, I had a Rockefeller, Murder, Inc., Rough Riders, Def Jam South, Fat Farm, Baby Fat, (laughs) Def Comfy Jam. Def. I I mean, you got a list of of things. So multitasking is in my DNA. Multitasking uh, and prioritizing is in my DNA.
0: Just days after the Warner deal is announced, Gunna not only has a number one album, he beat out The Weeknd, okay? No discs to the weekend because it was a very close match. Very close. We love the
1: weekend. Whatever. We love the weekend.
0: <laughs> yes. But that's huge, especially for a company that was until just days before independent. And, you know, did you guys do anything special to set up this record? Because it was really a very even race. Am I remembering right that they were both, both albums were announced that week and then they were just off. I think I think one
1: of the things you you have to remember we dropped Gunna's single in September. Uh, one of the things you have to remember uh, we were thinking that we would have all the content and all the pieces in play by a certain time. We were thinking that uh, um, we caught audibles throughout uh, um, the, the the movement, and we were thinking that hey, we'll drop a December album, uh, and then we didn't have everything that we wanted, and we said, well let's push it to next year, but let's come in in, in uh, uh, late February, March. Uh, and then, you know, Gunner and I spoke and, and Ebony, a uh, wonderful management team we had and said, Hey, why don't, why don't we start the new year off right? <laughs> why don't, why don't, why don't we uh, um, show people who we are, what we are, and why we are. And we wasn't, we didn't know who else would be on that date or anything like this. We just felt like what a, what, what, what a way to start off the new year. And I, I spoke to Gunner and I said, yo, um, this means because everybody's going on holiday, we made this decision, uh, when everybody was done in December, you know what I mean? So there's nobody to talk to at DSPs, there's nobody to talk to at radio, there's nobody to talk to. So, the, you know, for us, the staff worked diligently, uh, through it, um, the Warner Music Group, uh, again, made sure that we could uh, do what we wanted to do and everybody was set, but this couldn't have been done without Gunner and his his flexibility and, and uh, opportunity to call Audible um, and, and make it happen. So I, I, I tell people I never thought um, uh, it wasn't about kicking off the year to me. It was about what's the best time to have his album uh, come to his fans. And fortunately for us, it was January the 6th uh, and 7th, and, and it happened, and the rest is history. I
0: want to shift gears and talk about your career and your background and going all the way back. Born in Baltimore, you went to Morgan State on a NASA scholarship? I don't think I knew that.
1: Uh, A lot of people don't know. know, I I joke around. When I got out of high school, I was so afraid of life because it was the first time that I said, oh, I I get to make my own schedule. It wasn't gym at 9 o'clock or science at this day. You had to make your own schedule. And so I didn't know what that meant. And I also didn't know uh, what was the necessity of other than, quote, unquote, people um, um, raising uh, kids to actually be employees. uh, But I I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I wanted to figure out what was the best way. And (laughs) I remember my guidance counselor said, Kevin, what do you want to do? I said, I want to make a lot of money. I want to go change the world. I said, you can't do that by being normal. You know what I mean? I said, well, what's the biggest opportunity for me? They said engineering. And I had the credentials uh, to be an engineer, uh, great in math, great in, in, in theory, knew exactly, um, um, had a, a excitement around electrical engineering. And NASA had a scholarship uh, for me. And so I, I graduated on, on that June 14th, and I was in school June 26th to start uh, the engineering program.
0: <laughs> you were already on that kind of schedule. Were you doing music at the same time?
1: Yeah, I was I actually own my own record company. I was in a group called New Marks. And, you know, after the whole Milli Vanilli thing, um, we were uh, still doing music, but it was more so uh, a hobby thing at that particular time because I started interning Def Jam also. So these are all the things that uh, um, came into fruition that, that helped make me uh, prepare for the opportunities that would come to me later in life.
0: It's funny because I'm. I mean, I'm looking at this, and I sort of looked at it as a linear path. It was just like, well, wait, he was an artist, and then he went to earn intern at Def Jam, but all this stuff was happening at the same time, right?
1: Yeah, all, all of it was happening at the same time. I remember I was interning uh, at uh, I was interning at Def Jam. I was in school. I was on tour with uh, Rob Bass and the LeVert and opening up for LL Cool J and Salt and Pepper and Run DMC and Will Smith the Fresh Prints and all these things. And uh, I remember getting a call and, and I was working as a manager at World Connections Travel, which was a travel agency uh, <laughs> for condominiums. And I, I was assistant manager at like 19 or something like this. I forgot how old I was. And um, it taught me uh, so many things. And I got a call and um, that internship turned into uh, a job opportunity. And it was all in preparation. And a lot of people don't look at their life like the, the next moment is in preparation for the next moment. So I go from, uh, I have an artist first mentality, Jim, because I was an artist first. I have a uh, uh, engineer mentality uh, because I've engineered my way through life. Being a kid coming out of Baltimore, uh, being able to engineer, end up uh, at a at, at deaf Uh I had the opportunity to go from intern to president because the, the people who were my, my, my bosses at that time Uh, leon russell were not afraid of somebody coming in because they were listening to her
0: were you in high school or something when millie vanilli covered your song
1: yeah um i was i'm trying to remember i think i was a senior okay uh, or a junior i i I did my version when i was probably a junior or a sophomore uh 86 i probably wrote it then and it came out in 86 uh which was i was a senior and then they remade it in 88. And now,
0: did, did, did that just happen or did the publisher pitch the song or something? Do you know how it happened?
1: I didn't know what publishing was back then. I didn't know what uh, uh royalty square back then. All I knew is uh I was a, a big deal in the Mid-Atlantic as an artist and somebody wanted me to make an album and I said, I'll do the album for $10,000 and oh shit, I wrote a record that sold 100,000 copies for me, but sold 18 million copies for Miller to Miller. So it was at that point in time I said, nah, I don't want to be in the music business. I want to be in the business of music. (laughs) And so I went to figure it out.
0: Was that a big, did that make you a lot of money in a short period of time? And then I assume it fell right off after their Grammy debacle, right? Uh, To this day, uh,
1: 30 years later, I still get checks in the mail. Wow. So, so you you know I, I, when you sell eighteen million copies and with a song and you're, you're celebrating, um, one thing you can't take away from it it was a great song. There were many things that that happened uh, around it. Um, very, very tragic story, uh, but also a triumph story. A triumphant story because uh, I don't think if that happened to me, um, I would be sitting here talking to you today. Because it really changed my mindset and what we learned the business of music
0: how quickly it can all change
1: <laughs> how, how listen how, how one day you could think one thing and the next thing or, uh, somebody's on mtv performing your song <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. um so you must have been the wealthiest intern at def jam uh,
1: i'm not i'm not gonna say i was the wealthiest intern at def jam but money money wasn't a problem that
0: okay <laughs> money ain't a thing as someone once said <laughs> we'll be right back with strictly business
2: Hey everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff, How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts.
1: It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting.
2: Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more.
0: Here's a clip from an upcoming episode featuring the weekly
1: home checks, Keyshawn Lane, that you won't want to miss
2: Catch new episodes of Grown Up Stuff: How to Adult every other Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Grown
0: up stuff, and we're back with Strictly Business. Let's talk about your years managing because a lot of the the artists you manage are not what you would call easy artists necessarily. Mariah Carey. D'Angelo, you know, not exactly a day at the beach managing those people. What did you learn from managing them? And what, would, what was it like managing Mariah Carey? How many years was it?
1: I think that was around three years. Uh, I, I don't know yeah. how long it really uh, was. But it was if with D'Angelo and, and Mariah, they were friends calling a friend. They were friends uh, that knew I'd gotten to the business and they were at certain points and they wanted a different insight. Uh, They wanted um, um, uh, not someone to get a commission, but someone who cared. They wanted someone who understood where they were in their life and someone that was experienced enough to navigate uh, the things that were going on. And so And by the way, I I know the title was manager, uh, but uh, I I really never felt like I managed them. I I felt like I advised them. I felt like they were a, a greatness. And there's still a a greatness in some of the um, national treasures uh, that we will hope to preserve as we continue to to grow. Uh, But it was uh, very remarkable because one day uh, you're talking about touring, the next day you're talking about scoring movies, the next day you're talking about uh, the um, um, the Christmas song, the Girl Christmas songs, and the next day you're talking about uh, doing a residency. And then, oh, you're talking about, well, you know, I I think that. Um, where after 15 years, we're ready to put out (laughs) a new album. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's a mix and match and everything. And again, still at that point in time, uh, they might've thought that uh, I was helping them, but they were really helping me uh, understand um, from iconic level, what was the value proposition uh, a CEO needed to bring to them. And then my younger artists, whether it was Trey or Big Sean, or, or um, Nelly, or any of those guys that came up Jeezy, they go down the list of, 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 of artists. It was just the opportunity to be big brother, uh, to be um, uh, in their life, like maybe their, their parent, the dad wasn't in their life. Uh, and so it really was a, a great opportunity for me. And, and that's why I've always adopted that it was family business. So, uh, and, and, and you have to think, um, I still manage today. The things that I did as a, as a manager, the things that I did as, as an artist and the things that I do as a CEO. Um, this is why I think people are attracted to our company, because I didn't uh, uh, raise people to be record company people. Uh, I, re- I raised them to be human beings that offered a value proposition every day they showed up to work.
0: Well, I want to ask you more about managing 300 in just a minute, but I, I do have to ask you, how did you get D'Angelo to give up that album? Okay, two or three years earlier, Questlove had said it's 99.9% done. And two or three more years went by while he continued to finesse it. How did you convince him that it was done and he should let it out? It was a miracle.
1: Uh, well, listen, it's still a miracle today because we still don't know how it happened. <laughs> but, but, but we know what would happen was um, if it was up to him, the album would never be, be ready because it, it, he, he's a, he's, his mindset and the way he looks at it, um, this is his, at this point, in his, at that point in his life, it was a culmination of things. And it was his story. He doesn't, he doesn't make music for everybody. He makes it for where he is in his life. And so uh, there were a lot of things that he was going through and every time he thought he was done, something else would happen that inspired something else to happen or sound. He would, he would actually tear a whole tear a whole song down because he he heard a new sound or something else that uh a, a new vocal arrangement that that came to him overnight you know do prayer and if you think about what was you know what was happening around the world and he called it the black Messiah and how uh it was really before his time because uh the, the, these prophets that have come up uh, and the things that have happened in, uh, for social justice, oh, no, you know, these are things D'Angelo was talking about when we dropped the Black Messiah. Yep. So it was the precursor to what was happening. So I think it was a, just a perfect storm and a perfect opportunity for us to um, see what the world was going to be through the lens of DeAngelo.
0: We spoke um, pretty early on in the pandemic and you had done a lot of things to look out for your staff you know, there was the free mental health care and a lot of other things. Can you talk about that and the kind of philosophy behind it? Because, you know, you said all that about artists, it almost sounds like you could be talking about your company as well.
1: Um, You you know, I I believe we all are in our own way. Uh, We all are one of ones Uh, We all have different fingerprints. We all are special. And one of the biggest problems that uh, I had with the industry When I left, was that we started to uh, um, um, treat everything the same, you know, and it became a commodity business. And oh, you can put this kind of artist out, or get another one like this and put this up. And um, I never wanted uh, people to be numbers. I never wanted artists to be numbers. I never wanted to operate out of uh, um, a commission. And I wanted to humanize the business. I got back into the recorded music side to humanize the business. I thought about the father or the mother or the son or the daughter. And I took it personal with the decisions that I made to be the first office to close uh, in, in New York because of the pandemic. My staff thought I was crazy to do it. And mm-hmm. I've taken the stuff to be probably one of the last people to go back in because mm-hmm. on my watch, I didn't want to have to go to somebody's house or um, somebody's funeral. Or uh, and or tell somebody's parents that because I, I that had them get on the subway to come to work, to blah blah blah. Got infected. I, I didn't want to do that, so I chose uh, uh, to treat them like I want to treat myself. I, and I had, I had two young daughters that live with me, and they have to be in school. So I, I, by the way, I thought about myself as a father and what it meant to my my family. And uh, I, I can't take back um, um, the thought of that. You know, met, what mental health. Uh, of issues people were having and we haven't seen the worst of it yet because post-pandemic
0: we don't know what it is it's too early talk quick about the mary j blige deal how did it come together did you work with her at def jam she was at universal but i'm not sure where she was at the time
1: no she was she was at Universal. but i go back to mary uh from when she was on uptown i I, again i'm i'm three decades in the business I, i go back to mary and uh, we did a very special record back in the day called Y'all I Need with her and Methamane. Met man was signed to Def Jam and Mary was was signed to a, a bad boy at the Uptown, whatever it was at that particular time. But Mary and I are friends. Mary and I, uh, this is not her signing to a label. Mary has her own label. This is me empowering a, a young woman to have the opportunity to finally express her thoughts and her way, not to do whatever people wanted to do, but to, to do her things. So my label with her, uh, and, um, opportunity with her is, um, more so, um, I, I would say if you had the opportunity to, and, and cloud did this best, whether it was Barry Manilow, Aretha Franklin, if, you know, you might not assign them, but to have the opportunity to work with a, a one of none, Mary's a one of none, there's, there, there'd never be another Mary in the so to have friends, to be able to come together, uh, to yell at each other and say, hey, let's put something out, and then, God reminds uh, her of who, what she really meant to do. She, she's telling you, I've been through the hell that you've been through. Wake up every day and tell yourself, good morning, gorgeous. And look in the mirror and say, good morning, gorgeous. What is that saying? To, that, that's a, that's, it's going to be something that changes people's lives. Those of us who've been shut down and shut in and shut out and told that we're, we're too fat or, 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 or uh, too, too ugly, you know, good morning, gorgeous. So to to, to to that's my next campaign. <laughs> you know, that's the next, the next the next viral viral thing that I, I, I want to push that we all should be looking uh in the mirror and saying good morning gorgeous. And fathers should be saying good morning gorgeous to their daughters. How about this? Wake up and tell your wife, good morning gorgeous. So this is um a moment in time and then they say, Oh shit, you know, we're gonna perform, have a perform halftime at the Super Bowl. I can't make this shit up. <laughs> You know, I, right place, right time, um, but working with friends and and, and who am I um, to not uh, provide opportunities for some of the greatest uh, icons in the world. And I got more announcements to come.
0: You've been listening to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. Thanks for listening.